Hi, I'm Steve Walsh. The incident we've been chronicling happened November 13, 1976. The Marines initially said they had no idea why the fight broke out. It would come out at trial, though, that leadership was routinely confronted with evidence that the Klan was on board Camp Pendleton in the months leading up to the fight. By the summer of 1976, the Ku Klux Klan was operating openly and publicly in the 2-2 area. This is Free the Pendleton 14. I hope I'm not boring anybody, but I really became quite fascinated with answering the question, why would they do this, attack the Klan and face the potential wrath? What was it like to be on board Camp Pendleton in 1976? That's what I kept asking Ricky McGilvery, the one member of the Pendleton 14 that I was able to find. He says he had high hopes for the Marine Corps. He expected that bond among brothers. That sense of solidarity he was expecting from the Marine Corps started to break down almost immediately from the time he arrived at Pendleton. That was an incident early in my enlistment. I hadn't been on base probably about nine months. He was a major. And he got us and he was telling us, I understand that there's a lot of racism, a lot of uh, uh, talk about racism. And now we all Marines, and nobody's any different. We all, this is what they, I love when they used to tell us this, Steve. We all bleed the same way. We bleed Marine Corps green. And then he looked over at Sergeant Washington, I think. Uh, Gunner, Gunner Sergeant Washington, Washington, I think that's his name. And he said, me and Gunner Sergeant, we get along real good. Uh, this is a major, a white major telling us this. You got a, a, a company full of black men and white men and Hispanic men. And he got us standing up because he had to address this situation that was going on uh, on base. And he said, me and Gunny, we get along real good. He a, he a black man. I'm a white man. Matter of fact, he my favorite nigga. And that, that Gunny Sergeant started laughing. He, 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 that's right. That's right, Major. Man, I, it blew me away. That not so much as the white man said it, but the black man in the 70s would agree to that mess. That, and that just threw us all off. So I look at the story and I see Clan, 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 David Duke, the Clan. And that's definitely part of the story, but I feel I'm still not grasping the full picture. I really want to know what pushes these guys over the edge. I went back to talk to my friend Ayana Contreras, who's a radio producer and author in Chicago. But I think it's not just about the Ku Klux Klan. Like, let's say that they weren't aligned with that. The, the people could still have all of those same things, feelings and attitudes, and just not be in an organized group. I think those feelings and those attitudes and some of that violence that you talk about would have happened whether the Ku Klux Klan proper was there or not. And that is the problem, the mindset. And I think you, I think you might have a point there. I mean, it's just, um, and maybe that's what attracted me to the story as well, hearing that it was the Ku Klux Klan happening in Southern California. 
But it, that's not really the real issue of what was really happening at Camp Pendleton. That's not really what causes this in the first place. An organization, it's not just a cross-burning. It's, it's like systemic, well, it's systematic racism, isn't it? Right. Yeah. From what you're saying, I mean, there's all these stories, these um, anecdotes that people experienced, right? Like it's in the water. That's what the real problem was. And, but when you say that, then all sorts of things, <laughs> then all of a sudden folks are maybe they're sensitive and, you know, it's a tough place and you should just buck up. You know, you should be stronger. Or, you know, it's the unseen presence, right? Like Ku Klux Klan, you have a, you have a picture in your mind of a guy with, you know, the, the white sheet and stuff, and you have a clearly identified enemy if you are against the idea of racism. But in this sense, it's much more insidious and maybe harder to put on the evening news. Ricky McGilvery is the only witness that I talked to, though from court records I've seen, the most interesting person in this case is William Spencer Jr. When the incident happens, he has only one month left on his enlistment. The African-American Marines meet in Spencer's room before the attack, which isn't unusual. Younger Marines look up to him. They come to him with their problems. The prosecution actually targets Spencer as one of the leaders. Spencer has a strong family connection to the Marine Corps. In 1942, his father becomes one of the first African-Americans allowed into the Marine Corps. Spencer's own fitness reports are consistently average to excellent. His plans are to go back home to North Carolina. He's already been accepted to A&T State University, a historically black college in Greensboro. He's that type of person. He walk in a room and I think you won't even notice he's in the room until he start talking, and he'll suck all the air out of the room once he get warmed up. He, he, he has a sense, and this is what I remember about him, he has a sense of his, his surrounding and his environment. And if it's not one that he want to be a part of, he'll stay right there and never say a word. He'll observe everything, he'll make observations, he'll make summations about things, but if he, if he ain't with you, he ain't with you. He ain't with you, I'm telling you, this guy. He's different. He's he's different. Oh, my God, he's different. Yeah. So he's just the sort of person who's always kind of like cared about other people and taken interest in everybody. And so Absolutely. even though he was he was out almost out the door himself and had other plans, he uh, he just couldn't overlook this. Could not. Could not. He just said, and I asked him, I said, well, what, what happened? He said, man, because they was wrong. And, and. You know, you just can't let wrong happen. And there's people like that. Just, I will sacrifice whatever I need to because they was wrong. The money raised by the Free the Pendleton 14 movement didn't just pay for outside lawyers. It also paid for expert witnesses. Psychiatrist Dr. Terry Ellen Coopers is with the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California. He's also with the Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science 
a historically black university in L.A. At the time, Coopers had just researched the relationship between white doctors and their black patients. He would go on to testify in dozens of class action lawsuits brought by inmates in federal prison. Spencer was his first court-martial. I saw him several times and testified at his court-martial. Generally, what I found was that the situation was just extremely tense and racially charged. And he, in particular, did not have any aspects of mental illness. He was a pretty well-adjusted person. He had not been violent in the past. He was not particularly prone to anger. Uh, He didn't get himself involved in political situations. However, he was a fairly charismatic guy. He, He had a lot of integrity. So he took seriously the the present threat of racial discord at Pendleton. He was well aware of the Ku Klux Klan being present, and he felt an imminent threat. There had been various black uh, Marines had been attacked. There were hateful signs around, and he felt that if the group didn't do something, uh, they were going to be seriously harmed or killed. There are rumors going around that the Klan is about to attack the Black Marines in the 2-2 area. There's a van parked in a parking lot painted with the sign, Join the Klan, Save Our Land. 16 Klan members were found on a list during the investigation, but one Klansman tells the New York Times that there are many others. A white Marine testifies he saw a group of Klansmen beating up a 13-year-old African-American in nearby Oceanside. Another Klansman testifies about a cross burning in back of the mess hall in September. But none of this happens to Sergeant Spencer personally. I asked Dr. Coopers, the man who examined him all those years ago, why would Spencer hear these stories and decide that he personally needed to act? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, think of it in in, in the current context, like uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. There is a ever-present threat of racial hostility around, and he was very aware of that. So the idea that he wasn't personally attacked, he was, in a sense, personally threatened. Another one of the Pendleton 14, Lance Corporal Gregory Coffey, testifies that he was chased by whites with a pipe and then later with a pellet gun. In September 1976, Coffey was in a human relations class at Camp Pendleton. He was the only African-American in the class with 13 or 14 white Marines, including a group of Klansmen. Coffey testifies that they put their feet on him. They tell him that he should go back to Africa. They use the N-word and other slurs. They harass him throughout the week. The staff sergeant in charge of the class remembers telling them to stop using the N-word. Yeah, but that's really about all he does. Coffey complained to several officers in his command, and he asked for a transfer. He says he was afraid of the Klan, but he was not taken seriously. Cooper says, in his opinion, the command's attitude is the key to all of this. The Marine base at Pendleton is a closed institution. The people who live there are entirely dependent on that institution. They're they're confined there. If they walked off, they would be charged with going AWOL. They eat their meals there. They're under the laws of the Marines. So it's a total institution. It's relatively small compared to society at large. It's a base. 
And on that base, there's a clear and imminent danger of racial hostility aimed at African-Americans. Now, when you put someone in a closed institution and they can't leave, that risk starts to multiply. And that's what happened. There was a, a culture of racial hostility at Camp Pendleton. The command was doing nothing to fix the situation. So actually, black Marines felt very much in danger at every turn. They were a, a small minority, too, of the base population. Colonel Johnson, the man who oversaw the Tutu area where the attack took place, he was made aware of many of the allegations in a report that came out months before the attack. There is an incident on a bus coming back from the town of Oceanside where Klansmen are wearing cards on their cowboy hats that say, is your neighborhood crime-ridden or is it still all white? They end up fighting with African-Americans on the bus. Incidentally, while they're on base, these same Klansmen also wear a patch on the rear pocket of their utilities. It's a circle with a cross with a red drop in the center, the symbol of the Klan. After the incident on the bus, the Klansmen actually ask for a formal hearing, feeling they are being harassed for wearing their Klan garb on base. Johnson and his junior officers don't see the Klan as a threat. Johnson testifies that he doesn't feel he actually has authority to take action. The African-American Marines say that they were being closely monitored while their concerns about the Klan were largely brushed aside. Instead, the African-American Marines had to answer to complaints from whites about things like dapping. Dapping was how you would greet each other, you know, and, and that's one thing white guys didn't like. Well, dapping came from Vietnam, how they explained to me, this was the way the blacks learned how to shake hands and, and be of that camaraderie uh, by dapping fist to fist, bumping fist and everything. The white guys didn't like that. But most time when you, you, you meet every group of blacks, we had our own different daps. And so you knew your group by the way y'all dapped. That group over there dapped a different way and you knew that group. But we all, we was all dapping. And that was one of the things that was happening uh, with the whites is that they like, these blacks look like they're getting together because that idea of oneness came from Vietnam because those guys were just a different group of black men. They had to they had to survive together. So they that's how they learned to survive together. So we had a group of blacks, young blacks, and, and most of us, the young blacks that I'm talking about, we hadn't served in Vietnam. We was pretty much fresh out of Viet, uh, out of a boot camp. You know, we had our own little swag. And then there was these white guys who had their own little swag, and and they they didn't they didn't serve in Vietnam, but but it was there was a separation. For a time, dapping was banned at the mess hall at Camp Pendleton. These types of suspicions were common, says Cameron McCoy, the historian and Marine officer that I talked to earlier. And there was a common phrase: "If you're white, you're all right. If you're black, take it back." These tensions between whites and blacks didn't just simply go away because of a chain of command or a rank structure. White officers were still very biased in their approaches. Not all of them, but the majority were. And that's what I found through my research is just many officers struggle. White officers just struggle to get past social norms because they 
were seamlessly carried into the military. McGilvery is away at Parachute Jump School for part of the year. He's kicked out for reasons that are entirely his fault. He falsifies a log to cover up for the fact that he's gone on a date. When he gets back to Pendleton in the fall, he can feel that the climate has changed. Pressure cooker. That's exactly what you talk. That's exactly what was going on. You, you had all these different society of men put together and the Marine Corps and their allowing of all this racism. That was the fire. And on the top, you had your military code of justice saying that you just can't leave because you're not happy with what's going on. That lid was tight, but the fire was boiling us over. But again, you know, with any type of pressure cooker, something's going to explode, and that, that's what exactly what happened. It, we exploded. We exploded. David Weitzman was an experienced attorney out of San Francisco. He was a national board member for the ACLU. He'd represented 60th anti-war activist Abby Hoffman and the head of the American Nazi Party. At first, he had a hard time winning over his clients, which included Ricky McGilvery. Initially, they were very reticent to speak to me. They didn't know who the hell I was. They never heard of me before. I never heard of them before. We were, they were also always in the psychological confines of their Marine Corps regiment. You know, that they had gone to their commanding officer to complain about the presence and threats of the KKK, and the command had done nothing. Weitzman had just finished a case which transformed the bail process in Washington, D.C. The National Lawyers Guild asked Weitzman to represent some of the Pendleton 14. Until that time, the Marines were represented by military lawyers with a judge advocate general, typically called JAG officers. The JAG officers were very nice guys, very cooperative and very helpful, but they had absolutely no experience. They had never tried a a real trial before in their lives. Uh, on the other hand, I had absolutely no uh, education or experience in military law, nor did any of the other civilian counsel. So we were working side by side trying to educate one another during the whole process. Anyway, the, one of the very first things that we, we did, and this was because my experience in the D.C. bail project, was to uh, try to get them out of jail. And the, they were in there for four months. And the, the problem with that from a defense counsel's point of view is that it puts an enormous psychological and emotional strain on the defendant and a willingness to plea bargain and to get this over with as soon as possible because uh, conditions in the brig, as my understanding, uh, are not uh, all that uh, luxurious. They appealed their case to the U.S. Court of Military Appeals, and they won. The case set precedent for military defendants. So starting in the spring of 1977, their clients were free. At least for a while. Coming up on the final episode of Free the Pendleton 14. As a lawyer, I, they violated the law and they paid uh, the price. 
As a human being, I can say I don't think they deserved it. Uh, I think that uh, I would have done the same thing that they did. When the African-American Marines get out of the brig, their funders send them on tour. One more episode to go. We still have a lot of ground to cover. <laughs>